Well, turning in our Bibles to our sermon text, which is Acts chapter number uh, 19, and a little bit into chapter 20 this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn there, you can pick up with me. Chapter number 19, Acts 19 at verse 21. Uh, we're about two-thirds of the way there. I think uh, if memory serves me right, we're going to probably go into like September, October-ish, and so uh, I'm already thinking about what to do next, but I don't, don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but uh, we're here about two-thirds of the way through the book of the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of uh, Jesus by the Spirit through his apostles. So in chapter 19, beginning at verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's what the Christian faith was called, the way, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all, the, all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, these are the leading uh, politicians and leaders uh, of Ephesus, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Talk about being shot, uh, shouted down like today, right, in politics. Being shouted down. And when the, crowd, uh, when, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 
after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, and Pyrrhus accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the, uh, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting, away, uh, waiting for us at Troas, our ancient Troy. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, the Passover. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him. And taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going on ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he had met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And to all these words, all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Well, Paul is in Ephesus here at the beginning of our story. It's really just continuing on where we left off last uh, Sunday. Paul is in Ephesus. And we see there's something very beautiful that he resolved, we read, he resolved in the Spirit. He resolved in the Spirit. He had this great, great desire to travel, notice, through Macedonia and Achaia, and then to sail to Jerusalem to get there for the day of Pentecost. Now, he has this desire, but we read that it's in the Spirit. The question is, is this a desire within Paul's human spirit? Is it his zeal, his passion, his desire, his thoughtfulness, his consideration that he would go to Macedonia, Achaia, and then on to Jerusalem, Or is this the Holy Spirit? You probably see in your Bible there, if you have the ESV, uh, I didn't check the other translations, but the ESV says, in the Spirit, capital S, Spirit. Uh, I don't think anyone else has a lowercase s, but uh, if there are English translations that have that, uh, just let me know. He resolved in the Spirit. And I take that to be, as we've been seeing so far, he's doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. He's being led on by the Holy Spirit. So that even when he thinks and he resolves and he considers and he desires and he thinks of where he's going to go next, he's doing so relying upon the wisdom of God and the Holy Spirit. 
chapter 13, we saw the church sent him out, sent him out to go on his first missionary journey. And then we read in chapter 13, verse 4, that it was the Holy Spirit who sent out the Apostle Paul. The church sent, the Spirit sent. We saw in chapter 16 as well, where Paul wanted, we saw, he wanted to go into Asia, this region in which he now is. Finally, he's there. He wanted to go there, but the Spirit said no. The Spirit led him on eventually to Troas, and from Troas to Macedonia, from Macedonia down into Achaia, or what we call today Greece. He was being led by the Spirit. And if you look over in chapter 20, uh, just after the reading from this morning, chapter 20, at verse 20, we read, uh, and we will read this uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, Paul said to the Ephesian uh, leadership, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying uh, to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. In other words, his desire was not merely his desire. He was being led and guided by the power of the Holy Spirit so that his will was the will of the Holy Spirit. It was not my will, as Jesus once prayed, but thine be done. And so he's praying and he's relying and he's considering traveling so in the Holy Spirit to Macedonia, to Achaia, to Jerusalem. But notice he's already thinking so, so far ahead. I must also see Rome. I must also see Rome. Was that the farthest point in the inhabited world, the Romans, that he desired to go? Was Rome? Where else? In his letter to the Romans, once he, as he writes to the Romans that he's coming to the Romans, he says something else, that from Rome he's going to travel where? Nobody knows where else Paul wanted to go. Spain! Spain! Romans 15, verse 19 and following. He, he desires to go to Macedonia here, and to Greece, to Jerusalem, eventually to Rome, and eventually he wants to bring the gospel to Spain. Of course, he doesn't make it there, but he desires this in the power of the Holy Spirit. So in all of his journeys, we've been seeing this so far in these first 19 chapters now, in all of his journeys, he's being led by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, and we see that he has this desire in the Spirit because it's the Word of God that grants the success, that grants him this confidence. The power of the Word of God, we saw last Sunday. The power of the Word of God, which is the power of God, is what gives him such confidence that he, a Jewish man, could travel all the way to the outermost parts of the Mediterranean, even to the Atlantic Sea, of the Atlantic Ocean, and to go to the Spaniards and to bring the gospel because he had confidence in the power of the gospel. And we see that again here this morning. His confidence is the power of the word because it's the power of God. And he has such confidence in the power of God, the power of the word, despite whatever struggles the world brings. Despite the world's struggles that 
it brings into the life of the believer and the church of Jesus Christ, our confidence is in the power of God. Amen? And our confidence today, we shouldn't miss this, that our confidence today, we may not be called to travel far and wide and and to learn different languages and to preach publicly and and from house to house and so forth and to plant churches and to reestablish churches and and to do all the work that the apostle did, but we are called as believers to be confident in the power of the word no matter where the Lord puts us. Which of the time being is here? Be confident. Be confident in the power of the word, despite the struggles of the world. Notice, first of all, we see that here. The apostle in uh, chapter number 19, he, he has such confidence, and the church has such confidence in the power of God, the power of the word, despite the struggle even of a civil riot. Even of a civil riot. And there's something here of a foreshadowing, a a looking forward to what Paul is going to experience once he actually gets to Jerusalem. That's the great irony, of course, is that he is desiring in the power of the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost and to bring, as his letters tell us, to bring an offering from the Gentiles to the Jews who are struggling and suffering in the days of famine. The irony is that it's the Spirit who's leading him there so that he can be taken to Rome in chains. He thought he would go to Jerusalem, travel freely to Rome, to preach the gospel, even to Caesar's own house. God had other plans. God's plan was to get him to Jerusalem, to get him arrested, we might even say, so that he might be brought to Rome in chains. But in those chains, he was able to preach the gospel and to see people within Caesar's own sphere of influence saved and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. We might say, humanly speaking then, without Paul being arrested by the Jews in Jerusalem, without Paul being taken in chains in a boat to Rome, he would not have gone to Rome. He would not have brought salvation to the Romans. God's ways, as we sang, his, his, his ways are a mystery. His ways are past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Lord, why would you send Paul to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be put in chains? And we see that in, we'll see that in the book of Acts. The church knew what was, what was awaiting him. Don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to imprison you. Don't go. Paul was constrained because the Spirit was constraining him, knowing that even through chains, God would be glorified. So despite the struggle of the civil riot, his confidence was in the power of the gospel. And we are introduced to this man named Demetrius, this silversmith, and he and all the, all the guilds of idol makers and, and god makers and shrine makers, they're all up in arms because they've heard the rumors of this Paul's preaching and they've actually heard him now in Ephesus. They've, they're seeing what is happening. And notice something that's interesting that he gives a very accurate summary of Paul's teaching there when he says in his little, in his little, uh, 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 rally, we might call it, a little speech to, to rally up the, the guilds of silversmiths and others, that Paul is saying that God's made with hands that we are making. God's made with hands are not God's. Is that accurate? Was Paul saying that? Where did Paul say that? Go back to chapter 14. Remember what he said in chapter 14. At Lystra, at Lystra, Paul was 
uh, and and uh, Barnabas were preaching and performing miracles. They called Barnabas Zeus, the great god, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And they began to bring a bull to worship Paul as Zeus and Barnabas as Hermes. But then they saw and they figured out what was going on. They tore their garments, verse 14. They rushed into this crowd and they began crying out, verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. That's what Paul was saying. Chapter 17, we saw as he was there in Athens on that Mars Hill, that great philosophical and uh, not just religious, but also that civil uh, place of power. He was telling them that there many, many thousands of gods that were lining their streets, even a, uh, even a statue to an unknown god. These things were worthless. Acts 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by hands. Does not live in temples made by hands. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Demetrius knew exactly what Paul was preaching, and he rejected it. Does that happen to us? Unbelievers know exactly what they're doing today. They know exactly what they're doing. They are rejecting God. They refuse to bow their knees to Jesus Christ. They know exactly what we are saying. That you are a sinner and that only Jesus Christ can save you. And that you're serving yourself and your, and your, whatever your desires are, especially today, your, your sexual desires. These are idols. Turn from these dead, lifeless things. They cannot bring you life. Turn to Christ. But they turn away. They reject. They refuse. They know exactly what they're doing. In fact, we saw last Sunday that people were being converted in Ephesus who were into all kinds of magical arts, dark arts. They were worshiping demons. They were serving Satan. But yet they were being converted and they began burning their books. These magic books. And they did so publicly. The, the, in the price of the books, we are told there in chapter number 19, verse 19, was 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 days work. That's the value of the books that they burned as they were being brought to Jesus Christ. Turn from these dead things to the true and living God. And so Demetrius and all those who are in an uproar, up in a stir, they, they knew exactly what Paul was saying. Now, on the one hand, they were very, very keen to what he was saying. On the other hand, that's not all we say. Notice, it's not just that we say that gods made with hands are not gods. Yes, we say that. Yes, we say that. Your money is not God's. Your personal self-identity is not God's. Your desires are not God. Whatever it is that you think is God is not God. These are things that you created. That's not all we say. We say turn from those things to a true and living God. How do we know that the God that we serve is alive and not a dead idol? How do we know that? Turn from dead idols to a living God. 
How do we know that he's alive? The resurrection. The resurrection. Our God is alive. All these other gods have died. All these other figures have died. All these other uh, philosophical leaders of the world have died and been buried somewhere. They're all dead. Only one died and rose again. Turn from idols to a living God. And Demetrius knew that what Paul was saying was going to bring great financial ruin to their lives as well as uh, religious danger because that temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so the crowds are crying out as they're rushing into the, into the, the great amphitheater of Ephesus, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And even when this Jewish man comes, presumably because he's trying to distance himself from the Christians, the, the synagogues didn't want to be associated with the Christians, and so the Jews sent a representative, Alexander, to try to defend themselves from what Paul was saying. And when they saw who he was, they knew who he was, they for two hours in an uproar, shouted him down. Thankfully, the crowd was dispersed. Thankfully, the things came to naught. But didn't Jesus say that the Christian life is going to be one of suffering and struggling and, pers- and, and, and persecution? Didn't, Paul, uh, didn't Jesus say, and here we have, have the apostles experiencing what Jesus said, John 15, verse 18 and following, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as it's so. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now we read a story like this and we might feel some distance between us and it. But let me just say, say a few things by way of uh, application. First of all, we read a story like this and, and it, should, it should encourage us to pray for those who actually are, are in harm's way. To pray for our brothers and sisters, for believers in other parts of the world who actually are in this kind of harm's way. We may not know what this is like, but trust me, our brothers and sisters, they do. Secondly, we read a story like this, it should also prepare our minds and our hearts for a time in which this sort of physical, outward, political, religious, cultural persecution is not just a thing that we can kind of feel the backs of our necks, but actually experience. So pray for those who actually do experience suffering like this. Prepare your own heart for these things. And let me just also say this. Especially those of us as parents maybe even grandparents, those of us that with, uh, as believers with children under our care, teach your kids. When you read a story like this, it should remind you to teach your kids that following Jesus Christ in the world is hard. It's hard. We so want to uh, teach our kids uh, that Jesus died for them, and that their, their sins are all forgiven, that they are going to go to heaven, that God is going to be present with them every single step of the way in life, 
that God will never leave them nor forsake them, that God is going to answer their prayers, that God loves them, that God cares for them, that, that, that God is with them, that they have nothing to fear. They can walk to the valley of the shadow of death, but know that the Lord is with them. We want to teach our children all of those wonderful gospel, positive, we might say, promises of what it means to follow Jesus, that sometimes we forget the other side. Following Jesus is hard. It's hard. How does he describe it? How does he describe the, the difficulty of being a Christian? It's like a camel trying to fit to the little hole in a needle. That's how hard it is, kids, to follow Jesus. You ever gone to a petting zoo and seen a camel? Even a baby camel is enormous compared to a tiny little hole in a, in a needle that maybe your grandmother uses to, to knit and stitch a little warm fuzzy for you this winter. That's how hard it is to follow Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me. Do you know how heavy a cross is? And what happens when you carry a big piece of wood on your back? You put it in your arms, you're dragging it, you're going to get splinters. It hurts, it's heavy, it's painful. Not even to mention all the shame of what that meant in those days to be a Christian publicly. For people to know that you belong to Jesus, they will hate you for it. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard. Now, a few, uh, oh, a few weeks ago, a month, whatever it was ago, when we had our big, our big party at our house, we, uh, we celebrated our, our firstborn son graduating high school, going off to college, and, uh, and, uh, and, and many people, not just many here, but many people said, you know, congratulations, Danny. You, you know, you did it. You did it, you know. Pat me in the back, send Cyprian off to, to, uh, to college, go play some basketball. You did it. Last night, my son texted me that for the third Saturday night in a row, he was not going to the big raging party off campus with his teammates. And I told my wife, I said, you know, we, we use this phrase in our house, it's a sports phrase, the grind never stops. You're always working hard, you know, for sports. You're always moving towards the goal. And I said, man, everyone has been saying, you know, you're done. 18 years out of the house, you're done. The grind never stops, you know. You're, you're, always, a, you're always parenting your kid. And there's my 18-year-old son by himself in his dorm without any of his teammates refusing to go because he knows what's going to happen when he goes there, if he would go there. And he said, I'm going to go to, I'm going to, Hang out by myself tonight. I got my ride planned for church in the morning, and, you know, it's all good. Following Jesus is hard. It may not be this kind of hard, but the peer pressure, the cultural pressures, the, the temptations, the allurements, they're hard. Teach your kids. Teach your kids that it's hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Notice there's also here the struggle, and again, these might seem very distant to us, but the pow- Paul had great confidence, and so should we, in the power of the word, the power of God, despite what Paul experienced as a struggle of an assassination plot. I hope I never experienced this, but Paul did. 
And so he's there, there uh, this, this great assembly of thousands upon thousands of people. And the, the, the Ephesian outdoor amphitheater sat somewhere around 50,000 people. And it was crowded for hours upon hours. They were shouting, greatest artists of the Ephesians. But yet it was dispersed. Yet it was dispersed. And so Paul, when things subsided, the uproar ceased. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, he sent for the disciples. He called the church to himself. And, he's, and he noticed there, there's, that, there's that word there again that uh, he, he encouraged them. We've seen this so many times in Acts. The language of preaching and teaching, the, the word of God is to encourage us. To encourage us. Which again is not just a, the nice happy pat in the back, you know, Jesus loves you. Encouragement is also when things are hard, God is with you. Continue on. I'm about to leave. You're going to be by yourself. This thing might happen again. Encouragement. And so he gathers the disciples in Ephesus. He encourages them. He says farewell to them. And he departs across the sea, the Aegean Sea, for Macedonia. And there he would have traveled to the cities that he had earlier gone to, Philippi and Berea, Thessalonica, these, these wonderful cities where these great churches sprung up and he's encouraging them, notice. Verse 2, he had given them much encouragement for, three, uh, uh, for uh, some time. And then in verse 3, he came to Greece three months there, notice, no doubt encouraging to them. And he wanted, as he traveled across from Ephesus, across the Aegean Sea, he traveled there uh, to, uh, to Macedonia, which we would today uh, see as northern Greece, and then down into Achaia, which is the southern part, which we today would call Greece. He wants to travel, as uh, he, he describes there, from there across the sea, across the Mediterranean, to get to Syria, which was Antioch, his hometown, his home base, to get to Jerusalem. But he couldn't. But he couldn't. When a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was set sail, uh, about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now notice that. In the beginning of the story, he had this great desire, uh, verse 21 said, in the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, to go to these very places, Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, and yes, in the Spirit, the Spirit led him there. But now notice part of that being led by the Holy Spirit is being led into danger. To be led into strife. Struggle. I was reading an article this week that talks about uh, the, one of the problems with, uh, with uh, uh, my generation, kids who grew up in the, in the 80s. It's the greatest generation, of course, but... Uh, best music in the world. But uh, one, of the, one of the problems with our generation is that our parents uh, were so afraid of, of, uh, of dangers because the media hyped up children being abducted uh, on the streets into, into dark vans with no license plates and, and scurrying kids off that, that now we, we helicopter parent our kids. We don't want them to get in trouble or we don't want them to get uh, a scrape on their knee. We keep the training wheels on too long. The Holy Spirit led Paul into a place of great struggle. 
The Spirit wanted him to go to Macedonia, to Achaia, eventually to Jerusalem, but notice it it involves strife, struggle, difficulty. And while his companions are traveling back across to uh, what is today modern-day Turkey, Asia in those days, they're traveling across the sea. Paul did so on land. So he goes back up north to Macedonia, back to Philippi, and then finally across the sea to Troas, or ancient the ancient city of Troy, that great battle took place. And there are some names there of, of some brothers that we, we might know. We, of course, we know about Timothy. We, uh, we've not only seen him, but we know that Paul wrote to him two letters. But there are some others there as well. And interestingly, we, we, we see something of this struggle as well in their lives. He just mentions there Aristarchus and Secundus, those from Thessalonica. But Aristarchus, we're told in chapter uh, 4 of Colossians, verse number 10, that he eventually became a fellow prisoner with the apostle. Not only was Paul put on the path of danger, but those with him were also put on the same path, and he was a fellow prisoner. And Paul had to send, we, we read, three times in Paul's letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Titus, three times he had to send Tychicus to these churches to encourage them. Ephesians 6 says that he was sent to Ephesus, back to Ephesus, to encourage your hearts. No doubt after Paul left, there was still great strife. And so he had to send Tychicus back to them to encourage them, continue on. It's worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. Know the power of God in the midst of the world's persecution. It's worth it. He sent him to Colossae. He sent him to Crete as well, the letter of Titus. Why was Paul so confident, brothers and sisters? He had this desire of the Holy Spirit to travel to these places and he gets there, and what's, what's waiting for him? Opposition. But yet, there's great encouragement. Why didn't he just pack up and go and just forget this? I mean, following, is following Jesus really worth it when it's just a life of suffering? What give, gave him such confidence? And what gave him such joy in the midst of strife, struggle, even an assassination plot? Let's go over to Romans. We know those texts, but uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Romans when he was in Corinth, which is in Greece, Achaia, and he may have written it at this very moment. We don't know exactly when, but it may have been at this time. It could have been his first trip, but it could have been here on his second trip to Corinth. He wrote these words, Romans chapter 8, words that you probably know really well. Words that we might even, uh, we might even have, you know, these are the kinds of words that we we, we, we put as little slogans, maybe as a, as a screen saver on our computer. Maybe we have a little uh, a picture on our wall at home, you know, with, with some of these words in there. Because they're great encouraging words. But the context is what Paul is now facing in the book of Acts. Notice in Romans chapter 8 at verse 31, I'm just going to begin reading there. Notice what he says there. What, shall we, what then shall we say to these things? These things that he's been saying. That those who are called by God are loved by God, and God works everything for their good, which means their salvation. 
God works together all things for the good of our salvation who are called according to His purpose. What shall we say to these things? That God works everything according to His will for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who was against Paul? An entire city, tens of thousands of people in a crowd wanting to tear his body apart. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I've read before in our, in our sermons here, Paul in his letters to the Corinthians, he, he describes himself how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was beaten, having to be let down in a basket through a wall of a city just to be safe. He had nothing, but yet... Because God has given us His Son. God has given us everything. He will give us all things. Who shall bring in a charge against God's elect? That's what they were trying to do. They were charging Him with trying to destroy the great goddess Artemis and take away their livelihoods. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now think about all Paul has gone through in Acts so far, and even just in this story, a city riot, an assassination plot. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, and we're going to sing this part of the psalm in our second service in just a bit, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice that. Even if we are being killed as a sheep led to be slaughtered, we are more than conquerors, Paul says. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's what gave him such confidence. That's what gave him such joy. It was in Christ who gave himself up for us to the world to be crucified for us, to be condemned for us so that we would face no more condemnation in Jesus Christ. So no matter what the world says, no matter what the world brings, no matter what the world plots, be confident. Be confident that your God is for you and he's right there alongside with you that your God in Christ has ex- gone through exactly what you are going through. He's gone through exactly what our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are going through this very day. He's already gone through what perhaps we may even have to go through in this nation in the West. And he conquered. Why be afraid? Why be fearful? 
Why, why, why so full of trepidation that a little bit of persecution may come? Be confident. Be joyful in Jesus Christ, despite the world. And that brings us here, finally, and most briefly, to that third struggle. It's kind of an interesting one. Verse 7 through 12 of chapter 20. Paul makes his way to Troas. That's that launching point into uh, Greece. And that's the tip, the western tip of uh, modern-day Turkey, ancient Troy. He makes his way back there. And it's on the first day of the week. What day is that, kids? The first day of the week? Sunday, right? Sunday. But what's Sunday also called in the Bible? It's called the first day of the week, but it's called something else. We call it Sunday in our calendar, but what's it also called? What does God call it? It's the Lord's Day, right? Revelation 1, verse, 12, uh, verse 10, the Lord's Day. And why, why did the early Christian church gather on that first day of the week, the Lord's Day? What happened on the Lord's Day? What happened on the first day of the week? The resurrection. The resurrection. Why is Nate getting poked? Is Nate in trouble? <laughs> And by the way, half of you moved to the other side today, so it's confusing today, but you guys keep doing that to me this summer. Everyone keeps moving. So what happened on that first day of the week? The, the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, John chapter 20, the gospel writer John tells us in chapter 20 uh, that uh, he actually calls it the eighth day. Uh, it's not called that in our English text, but uh, the, the Greek text calls it the eighth day. Why? It's a day of new creation. The day of new creation. That's why we worship. That's why the church worshiped. That's why they gathered. And Paul was there uh, in Troas gathering together with the church that was being assembled there on that first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection, the day of new creation, the Christian's Sabbath day. To do what? They gathered to what? What does it say there? To break bread. To break bread. What does that phrase mean in the book of Acts, to break bread? It doesn't mean to put a sourdough loaf in the oven and warm it up and put some honey and butter on it. Okay? As good as that might be. It's the Lord's Supper. Chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the prayers, to the, uh, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread. All the way back in chapter 2. To break bread is always in the context of communion. And that's why Paul can tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ? The purpose of the church gathering is for this very thing. Notice that. Paul's preaching and they're gathering for the bread of holy communion. We'll come to that in our second service and I promise it'll be short. But they gathered to break bread on that resurrection day, that day of new creation, uh, the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And every preacher loves this text because Paul preaches until midnight. <laughs> Paul preaches into midnight, notice that. And this young kid, uh, he's called a pice in Greek, he's like 8 to 14 years old. So he's a young kid, 8 to 14 years old. Uh, Eutychus, he's up in, a, in an upper window, in, a, uh, in an upper room, there's a window uh, no glass, just an opening, probably with a curtain on it. And it's open and he's in the windowsill, as we say. He's, he's leaning up against his back, his head to the windowsill, listening to the apostle preach on and on and on and on again. 
And what happens? Even the Apostle Paul had people fall asleep. Okay? I, I, I've never preached this long, so, uh, but I've preached, I've preached long enough. So um, he falls asleep. In fact, it's interesting, his name Eutychus in Greek means lucky. It means lucky, which it's an irony because it's not lucky here. It's in God's providence. And he falls asleep and he falls down uh, this, uh, this, this, this uh, upper room windowsill and he dies. Paul goes down below, grabs hold of the kid. His life is still in him. It reminds us what Peter had already done in chapter 8 with Dorcas, what Jesus did to the widow's son in Luke chapter number 7. Notice he's preaching, and then there's this miraculous sign. And wouldn't it be, how, how amazing was that service to have a miraculous sign happen with the Apostle Paul's lengthy hours long preaching right as you're taking the Lord's Supper? He heals the kid. He brings him back to life. He goes back up the staircase to the upper room. He breaks the bread. They celebrate communion. As if nothing happened. And then he conversed with them until daybreak. You know, uh, this is at midnight when he's preaching until midnight. The boy falls and dies. When is daybreak in the, in the Jewish calendar? 6 a.m. Okay, six more hours. Kids, you want to be here for six more hours? Okay, six more hours. We're told that he conversed with them. Even this tragedy in the church. Notice that it's not worldly things. It's not uh, satanic influence. It's not the struggles of our own sinful flesh. Even in the church there are tragedies. This young boy who's intent to listen to the preaching of the word and be there for the Lord's Supper, he died. But nothing shall separate us, as Paul knew, from God's love in Jesus Christ. Despite even tragedies that in some way happen, and again, we, re- we sang that wonderful song. I mentioned that song a couple weeks ago at Sarah Wheaton's uh, graveside service uh, as, she, uh, as, as she died in a very tragic death, very sad. But I mentioned that song, that, that passage from Romans chapter 11. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Everything. In, in, in some way we can sing those words and say, from him and to him and through him are everything, are all things. So that even in tragedies, in the struggles that they bring to our hearts, we know that God and his word are powerful. And so we see here another instance Many more instances, many more examples. The power of the word. The church was encouraged. Great encouragement we read about here. Paul's preaching. The church intends to hear his preaching. The church gathered uh, to hear him, to take the Lord's Supper. The power of the word is the power of God. And despite all the powers of the world, the flesh, the devil, and even human tragedy. We're able to follow Jesus in this world despite whatever it might bring with great confidence, with great joy because our hope is in Christ. He's that power of the word. And you've come to hear that very same thing again today to be reminded that God is powerful. 
You're not. God is. That God is with you, even when you forsake him. That God is good when you're not. That God loves you when you're unlovable. That God leads and guides you when you are kicking against him. Here's the power of God. Once again, illustrated to us in so many different ways in the life of the apostle in his journey. Be confident, brothers and sisters. Trust in the power of God to continue to work in your life, in the life of this church. Let's pray. Lord, help us, we pray, to be so confident, to be so joyful in you. And we ask now that as we come to the Lord's Supper, that you would encourage our hearts and feed our souls with the very body and blood of Christ as we receive with our very hands and the mouth, Lord, uh, this bread and wine, which by the power of the Holy Spirit are for us that life-giving nourishment of Christ himself. And so, Lord, give us that confidence. Give us such a zeal for your word to share it, to spread it, and to see many more come to know this great love of Jesus Christ who lives and who reigns forever and ever. And all of God's people say, Amen. Let's turn together in our songbook, please. Uh, our song to uh, transition our minds and hearts from the word to the sacraments. Number 524, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Let's stand.